We were made for wholeness that can only be found in union with our Creator. But since the beginning, we have embarked on an endless quest to satiate our desires with a never-ending array of disordered loves. We have attached ourselves to pleasure and relationships and work, but they do not satisfy. What if the truth is that no created thing will ever fulfill us like the creator of all things can? No created thing can bear the weight of our deepest hopes or the weight of our soul's longings. Only one can do that. All the rest is counterfeit. If you've been here with us for this counterfeit series, you might be thinking to yourselves, I'm so glad that we're done with this series. Let's move on to something lighter than idols because it's been a little heavy, right? Not really, but kind of. This series has been a challenge. It's been a challenge to prepare, um, to engage this story of Moses and the Israelites, to process and, th and synthesize and listen to the spirit as we have engaged it. And it's also been a challenge to receive it, I think, for those of us who have been a part of the series. It's been a challenge because I think a lot of us believe that maybe idols aren't necessarily a thing that we really struggle with too much in our day-to-day -day lives. And I think that being a part of this series and learning what we've learned has kind of been challenging. And I hope that it's been challenging. That's kind of the point because that's the work of transformation, right? So... This message today is what's been the most challenging of all for me personally. I'll just say that. And of all the places where I might be tempted to create a counterfeit as opposed to leaning into the presence of God, this is probably the place for me. So I'm sharing from a very vulnerable, real place that's in the midst of the battle here. So before we get into what we're going to talk about today, we're going to think back real quick on what we've already covered in this series because we have engaged several different sorts of counterfeits, right? Things that we are looking to for our worth, for our joy, for our purpose. We have uncovered quite a few counterfeits. And the first thing that we uncovered, of course, was the dark things, right? The dark things like destructive behaviors or destructive relationships or addiction or deceit, things that are clearly unhealthy for us. And we talked about those, but we didn't spend a lot of time talking about those sorts of idols because when we see those sorts of idols in our lives, it's pretty clear that we know what to do with those sorts of idols, which is simply to bring it into the light, right? The dark things brought into the light don't become idols anymore, right? That's, the play that's where we could begin to walk away from relationships or behaviors that are destructive to us, right? So we didn't spend a whole lot of time there, but there are other idols that are harder to turn away from, right? What about the sin of disordered loves? The sin of disordered loves, the good things that we unconsciously turn into ultimate things, right? So we talked a lot about the good things, and we talked about family, ministry, religion, scripture, community, church, all of these good, good things 
that if we're not careful, can become ultimate things, can become idols, can become gods of our own making instead of what they really are intended to be. And so if you miss those messages, I would encourage you to go back to listen because there's a lot of really good teaching in there. But simply put, what we were encouraged to do with these good things, instead of making them idols, where we're looking to to find our worth, to find our truth, to find our joy, instead of making them idols, we make them altars. Altars, right? We make them the places where we go to encounter God's presence, to encounter the authentic presence of God, the real, true God, we can go to all of those places to find that presence. And in that way, they're not idols. They're altars, right? But we didn't stop there. No, we did not. Last week, Pastor Benjamin did an amazing job of talking to us about another place that we can tend to substitute for the authentic presence of God, and that is simply God construct, right? And we talked about the story of the golden calf, which we always think of as, well, the Israelites, they just, they, Moses was lost up on the mountain, and so they just made this idol to worship because they thought Moses was gone and they didn't know, you know, how to follow God anymore, so they made this other idol to worship. But what we realized was it wasn't, they weren't making an idol to some unknown random God. They were trying to make an idol of their God. They were trying to find a, a tangible thing to represent their own God, God, Yahweh, to worship, right? And that broke his heart more than anything because that's not what he wanted. He wanted, to, he wanted them to experience his presence, not engage with an idol, right? And so it was one of the most devastating things they could have done. It almost cost them everything. But what we learned was what God did was send Jesus, right? As an icon, not as an idol, so that we have a tangible, tangible human way to experience the presence of God. So with our God constructs, however we construct God at this stage in the game, what we do is instead turn to Jesus, right? So here we are. And we've talked about the dark idols and the good idols and the God idols, right? So what more could there be to say? Well, for that, we have to go back to the story, right? So Moses and the Israelites, when they camped at Mount Sinai, and Moses went up and down the mountain 500 zillion times to get all the rules and the Ten Commandments and all of that stuff, and they encountered the authentic presence of God there, that was not the end of their story, was it? No. What was the end of their story? Where, where was this whole nation of people supposed to be headed? Where were they going? Anybody know? The promised land. The promised land. Right. Now, that's the end of the story, right? Like, that's the last chapter of the story. That's the goal. That's the destination. Or is it? Or is it? If you know the whole story, you know that the people that were there that day when they made the golden calf and the presence of God came, those people didn't actually ever get to the promised land, right? They made it almost all the way there, and then they were too fearful, too afraid to trust God to go into the promised land, so they ended up wandering in the wilderness. And no adult present that day besides Joshua and Caleb actually were able to enter the promised land, right? They didn't trust the God who is presence. And although he went with them, in clouds of smoke, 
and pillars of fire and the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle that traveled along with them, although he was with them, they still didn't fully trust him. They still didn't fully know how to engage his presence, right? And they were too afraid to, to fight the battle, right? So they ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, there's a lot of lessons that we can learn from that wilderness experience, and we have before, and we will again, but today, we're going to make it much more personal. We're going to look at the man who this, we've really followed all along in this story. We're going to look at Moses. Moses. Can you imagine this? Moses, the one who said yes to God at the burning bush, the one who was brave enough to go face Pharaoh, the one who was brave enough to lead hundreds of thousands of people through the desert, through the Red Sea, up to the mountain, to lead them, to guide them, to shepherd them for all these years. Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. Moses never made it there. Now, the story of why Moses did not get to go into the promised land is kind of a distressing and not very um, reassuring story. Um, Basically, God tells Moses out in the desert to speak to a rock so that the rock will produce water. And Moses, instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes it with his rod. And because of that, Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land. That's the reason. One act of disobedience kept him from the promised land, which feels confusing to us, right? Because in a different story, before Moses went up the mountain, God did tell him to strike a rock with his rod to create water, and he did, and God was pleased with it at that time. But this time, when God told him to speak to the rock, he struck it, and that was it. Game over. He didn't get to go to the promised land. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 32. That same day, the Lord said to Moses, go to Moab, to the mountains east of the river, and climb Mount Nebo, which is across from Jericho. Look out across the land of Canaan, the land I am giving to the people of Israel as their own special possession. Then you will die there on that mountain. You will join your ancestors just as Aaron, your brother, died on Mount Hor and joined his ancestors. For both of you betrayed me with the Israelites at the waters of Meribah and Kiddush, in the wilderness of Zin. You failed to demonstrate my holiness to the people of Israel, so you will see the land from a distance but you may not enter the land I am giving to the people of Israel. This is a hard story. I don't particularly like this story. I don't particularly like that God made this decision, right? And it's really devastating that this mistake that Moses made kept him from the promised land that he had been believing in, prophesying about, leading towards for years and years and years through battles we probably can't even fathom. And he didn't get to go to the promised land. Right? And so, today, as we close out our counterfeit series, we're going to ask ourselves this question. Could my promised land become my counterfeit? Could my promised land become my counterfeit? If the counterfeit spaces, right, are spaces where we're trying to manufacture wholeness based on anything other than the presence of God himself, if that's what the counterfeit space is, then could it be true that sometimes we allow a destination or an outcome or a promise, a future hope, to become an idol? Could it be possible? I think it is. Can we allow those things to define our purpose and our worth and our joy? So I can tell you 
but from a very young age, I have loved to navigate. I'm a very good navigator, as I think I've mentioned to you before. And I love to arrive at destinations. I not only like to like figure out how to get places, I like to get there. And I'm really good at it. My dad, when I was a kid, he used to make me give him directions wherever he was driving so that I could learn the roads and the land and how to navigate. So I guess I probably got it there. But I, there's a huge sense of accomplishment, I think, and me at least, whenever a destination is reached or a goal is achieved, right? Whenever a vision of the future becomes a tangible reality in your life. That's why I love running. That's why I run races, right? Because even though I'm not particularly good or fast or beautiful while I'm running, I love, there's something amazing about crossing that finish line, about finishing the race, about getting to the destination, right? So when we were young, we, our family decided to take motorhome trips every summer. And so this was back in the dark ages, apparently, before the internet. So what my mother invited me and my brother to do, we were homeschooled at the time, was to write letters to the Chamber of Commerce in every state that we were going to go visit to, write letters, and ask them to mail us brochures about all the fun things to do in their state. This is how you plan trips back when I was a child, back in the day. So we would write all these letters to the Chamber of Commerce, and they would mail us these brochures, and my brother and I would look through them. Just Charlie's face, <laughs> sorry, was distracting. <laughs> You're a young, young man. We would, they would mail us these brochures, and we would like plan out our trip based on what brochures looked the most interesting. And so we had this giant atlas. And we like literally mapped out our trip the whole way to Yellowstone. This was the first one was Yellowstone. It's the one that I remember the most. And when we first started planning this trip, I'm like, all right, Yellowstone, that's the destination. We're going to get there. What's the fastest way to get there? But then as we started getting all these brochures for like Wall Drug and the Corn Palace, have any of you guys ever been to the Corn Palace? It's pretty amazing. We found all of these random places to go along the way, and we planned this trip. And as I think back about those times, because there were several years of this, let's write to the Chamber of Commerce and get brochures, I don't necessarily even remember where we went on all those trips. I just remember the joy of the journey, right? It was not so much about getting to Yellowstone as it was about all of the places we visited along the way. Now, that does not mean I'm summing up this message like a successories poster is not the destination, it's the journey. That's not necessarily the point, although that's a little piece of it, right? But we're not stopping there. We're going to take it a little bit deeper. Because how often do we really put our hope and our trust and our worth in an outcome, in a destination, in a promise that we feel like we've been given from God? How often do we do that? And when we do, are we making it an idol? Are we making that promise, that destination, that outcome an idol? something that separates us, veils us, from actually experiencing the authentic presence of God in the moment that we're living, right? So let's think back to Moses. What must have that felt like to him, right? To give his whole life in service to God and then to be denied entrance to the promised land. This always seemed like a really sad story to me. I never got it before I read this book by Ruth Haley Barton, called Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership. And she has a different perspective on this story that honestly has changed my life forever. And so I'm going to read a little bit of it to you today. She says, 
Since my Sunday school days, I have known the end of Moses' story. He got to see the promised land, but he didn't get to go in. Since Sunday school, I have understood that this was Moses' punishment for striking the rock at Meribah rather than just speaking to it as God had instructed him. Back then, I accepted this as the consequence for Moses' sin and allowed myself a vague sense that perhaps it seemed a little harsh. But more recently, I have to admit that it seems inordinately cruel. The words God spoke to Moses as he looked out on what might have been. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over. It seemed like the coldest, most punishing, most withholding words that could ever be uttered to one who had been so faithful. And God's instruction for him to ascend to the top of Mount Nebo and look at the land before dying seemed a little bit like rubbing Moses' nose in it. It has taken me a long time to really face this part of Moses' story and look at it unflinchingly because it brings up a painful possibility, the possibility that this could happen to me. That I too could work hard and serve long, straining towards some goal or dream, and that God might someday say to me, you can look, but you can't go in. You can long for it, but someone else will take it across the finish line. You might be the one who saw it, but someone else will take it the rest of the way. Now, after that, in this book, she unpacks the rest of Moses' life in a little bit different perspective. And we're going to do that today. And it's a way that observes Moses' journey surrounded by his relationship with God. It looks at the way that Moses experiences the authentic presence of God, which we've been looking at all along. Moses experienced it at the burning bush. Moses experienced it on the mountain in a way that no other human did. And we're going to look at another instance, too the way that he learned to engage the presence of God. And then she says, for Moses, the presence of God was the promised land. The presence of God was the promised land. Now, we aren't dismissing the severity of Moses' sin in striking the rock. That had consequences, just like all sin does. It had consequences in this life, right? There's no getting around it. But what we're saying is maybe going to Canaan didn't matter to Moses as much as we think it did. Maybe getting to Canaan wasn't the real promised land that Moses was clinging to. Something happened to Moses after he came down off the mountain and encountered the Israelites worshiping the golden calf. Do you remember? Let's look at it in Exodus 33. Basically what's happened is God was about to just literally wipe them out and Moses like begs for him to spare them. So some of them get wiped out. And then God says to the rest of this is what God says to the rest of them in Exodus 33. The Lord said to Moses, get going. You and the people you brought up from the land of Egypt, go to the land I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I told them, I will give this land to your descendants, and I will send an angel before you to drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to this land that flows with milk and honey, but I will not travel among you, for you are a stubborn and rebellious people. If I did, I would surely destroy you along the way. 
This is what God says. He's like, all right, I promised you this land, just go. And later he says to Moses, I'll send an angel to go with you, to protect you. Just go to the land. You guys, you don't understand my presence, right? And what does Moses do? He pushes back. He argues with God. He says in Exodus 33, one day Moses said to the Lord, you have been telling me, take these people up to the promised land, but you haven't told me whom you will send with me. You have told me, I know you by name and I look favorably on you. If it is true that you look favorably on me, let me know your ways so I may understand you more fully and continue to enjoy your favor. And remember that this nation is your very own people. And the Lord replied, I will personally go with you, Moses, and I will give you rest. Everything will be fine for you. Then Moses said, if you don't personally go with us, don't make us leave this place. It's like that song that we sing. I don't want to go if you're not going before me. If you don't personally go with us, God, then don't make us leave, right? Don't make us leave your presence, which is here. I think this is what God was longing for all along, this understanding in Moses. This is what God was longing for because in asking God to do this and saying, that's a nice land over there, but I don't care about living in that land if I'm not with you. So I'm not going. And in doing that, Moses was redefining the promised land in that moment. For him, the promise wasn't about Canaan. It was about the presence of Yahweh the God who is presence, right? Then, right after that, the Lord replied to Moses, I will indeed do what you have asked, for I look favorably on you and I know you by name. Moses responded, then show me your glorious presence. The Lord replied, I will make all my goodness pass before you. I will call out my name, Yahweh, before you, for I will show mercy to anyone I choose and I will show compassion to anyone I choose but you may not look directly at my face for no one may see me and live. The Lord continued, look, stand near me on this rock. As my glorious presence passes by, I will hide you in the crevice of this rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and let you see me from behind, but my face will not be seen. So Moses asked God to reveal his glory. This is the promise that Moses is hoping for. This is the experience that matters more than anything to Moses, not getting to the promised land. And God agrees to it. And an experience that probably has never been experienced by any other human, something like walking into the sun itself, God's presence comes that near to Moses, right? And the experience changes Moses forever. Ruth Haley Barton says this, something happened to Moses. He was so changed by the journey that nothing in this world had any hold on him at all. Could it be that the promised land is more personal than we think? Could it be that the promised land is less about a physical destination or anything that is outward and more about a way of life and being that enables us to worship and love God fully? Is it possible to have encountered God so richly that no matter what we are working towards here on this earth, we know we already have what we most deeply want, the presence of God, that which can never be taken from us. But how often, church, do we make an idol 
out of our promised land. How often do we miss the beauty of the wilderness and the lessons in the wilderness and the wild of the wilderness because we're so focused on a promise of what is to come, right? How often do we ignore the authentic presence of God in our midst, in every moment, because we're focused on what is ahead. Because what Moses had to ask God for on that day, it's different, guys. This is why Jesus came. This is why the Spirit stayed. The Spirit is with us in every moment. This authentic presence of God, we don't have to climb a mountain and hide in the cleft of a rock to come near it. It is in us. It is in us, in this moment, in every moment. Ruth Hilly Barton goes on to say this. The promised land is something that you see and know and that can't be beaten out of you even when other people don't see it yet. Even when they say it's impossible, unrealistic, idealistic. It is the phoenix that keeps rising out of the ashes of every failure. It can never fully die. But paradoxically, by the time you get to the promised land, it has usually been stripped down to its barest essence. What matters then is the presence of God right there with you on the mountainside and being able to say yes to God in the deepest way because you're not clinging or grasping to anything. This makes you free indeed. Moses that day on that mountainside, looking at the promised land, when we read that in the scripture, we might feel sorry for him, but the truth is that he was already experiencing the presence of God. And it really probably didn't matter whether he set foot in the land of Canaan or he didn't. Because that was not where he found his joy and worth and wholeness and purpose, right? But our promised lands are good things too. The dreams and visions that God has given us individually, and as a church, they, they are the phoenix that rises from the ashes of our failures, right? They are the callings and pursuits of our lives, and they point us towards purpose, towards clarity, towards joy. But they're not the source of our wholeness. They're not the source of our wholeness. The God who is presence is the only place to find the source of our wholeness. And the stripping down that she's talking about here, that's the subsistent spirituality, right? That we learn on this path to the promised land and it leads us into that moment-to-moment -moment awareness of his presence, right? And we aren't discounting heaven in this conversation, of course. Whatever is yet to come, creation as it was meant to be, separation reverse, wholeness restored, that is the promised land. That is the wholeness, shalom, that's coming. Union with God again. That is what we are yearning for. But we don't have to wait until death to lean into that place, to lean into that presence, right? We don't have to allow anything counterfeit, anything counterfeit, including the hope of what is to come, to veil us from experiencing that presence now, right? And yet we do. We do. We do allow that to happen. I do. I think we all have our promised lands, right, that we hope for. Financial stability, the kids safely off married or in college, our marriages healthy and whole, work success, retirement, 
the book we want to write, the song we want to sing, the movie we want to make, the flourishing church, right? The ministry we want to start. And those are good things. Yes, they are good things. And I pray that we will always have the courage to move towards those things that are planted in our hearts to do and be in this world, right? I pray that we will move towards them with action and intention and that they will rise like a phoenix every time we fail. Those things that God plants in us, they do rise again, right? But I also pray in the deepest and truest places of our souls that we won't turn them into counterfeits, that we won't try and define our success, our worth, our joy, our purpose by reaching those things that we are moving towards because that is counterfeit that veils us from an actual experience with the presence of God. It's an idol, right? And I found myself doing it again this week, this very week <laughs> about Element, because I found myself longing for Element to experience the promised land, the flourishing of all that we feel like we are called to become here. The work that we're doing here is good, and it matters, and it is pleasing to the Father. And sometimes I just, I want to see it flourish, right? I want to see chairs filled. I want to see hundreds of children housed and fed and clothed. I want to see our giving multiply, and I want to see our worship overflow, and I want to see hundreds of hearts turn to Jesus for the first time. I want to see that here, right? I want to see the church at large take notice of the authentic community that happens here at Element. I want to flourish in the promised land. I don't want to wander in the wilderness sometimes. And I found myself longing for that this week, deeply. And I felt discouraged, deeply. And maybe I still feel it. And when I went to write this message, like it almost felt too hard to bring myself back to a place of truly being able to say to God, your presence is the promised land. Your presence is the promised land. Today and tomorrow and forever, right? And because of your presence with us, we will keep fighting for this phoenix that keeps rising. Yes, we will, right? I will keep speaking the hope that refuses to die in me. Absolutely. I won't let it be beat out of me, and I will hold to this idealistic view of church as long as your presence is with me. As long as your presence is with me. And if I never experience it, the fullness of it, in my lifetime, if I can only stand on the mountainside and view it, that's enough. That's enough. Because you're with me on the mountainside, right? Everything we do on this earth is just a page in the one true narrative of redemption. I love this poem or prayer written by Archbishop Oscar Romero. He says, it helps now and then to step back and take a long view. The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it is beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete. 
which is another way of saying that the kingdom always lies beyond us. No statement says all that could be said. No prayer fully expresses our faith. No confession brings perfection. No pastoral visit brings wholeness. No program accomplishes the church's mission. No set of goals and objectives include everything. We cannot do everything. And there is a sense of liberation in realizing this. This enables us to do something and to do it very well. It may be incomplete, but it is a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that is the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are workers, not master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. The band can come up as we close today. But as we do, I'm inviting each of us to really think about what the promised land means in our lives. What does it mean to you? What dream, what vision, what purpose has God planted in you? What phoenix rises from the ashes of failure in your life? What promise are you holding to? And now hold to it. Fight for it. Believe in God's favor upon it. But don't allow it to become the counterfeit. Don't allow it to define your worth or define your joy. Your joy and worth are already a given. In this moment, just as you are, the God who is presence is here among us. Our promised land is his presence, and he will always be enough. So to pray today, I'm going to read a prayer by Ted Loder that expresses this in words better than mine. Deepen me then in wisdom that defies the conspiracy of privilege, the trap of dogmatic closure, the lure of biases that enslave, wisdom that distinguishes joy from success, treasure from wealth, meaning from busyness, love from possession, peace from comfort. Release me from my victim's cramp to the discipline of freedom, the passion of bold choice, the dare of creativity, the courage of an honest voice. And to the faithful, dicey pressing on, through a way I can't quite see, toward the home I never reach, and the whole I'll only be with you, who even now is pressing home.